1: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Syneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by the China Africa Project's managing editor, Kobus van Staden, from Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus.
0: Good afternoon
1: is just very quickly before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to our Patreon supporters and all of the wonderful folks who are gathering with us every week over on Patreon. We're having these fantastic discussions, really exciting to have these chats with folks. Uh, every week on Fridays, we put a week in review of the top stories from China in Africa and China in the Middle East, increasingly, on uh, it's this great little weekly digest that we put together. If you'd like to subscribe to that, by the way, you can do so over on our website – but it goes out to everybody on Patreon. And we're also setting up these chats now with our new Arabic and French-language journalists who are helping us put together these wonderful new uh, services that are starting to come out. All of our French services are now out. Thank you to everybody who's begun to follow our new French-language website at Projet Afrique Sheen and following our Twitter feed at Afrique Sheen. That's Afrique with a K, not a Q-U-E and also listening to Jeronima's new weekly French language podcast Afrikshin, as well. It's really exciting to see the traction there. We also have a new Arabic language Twitter feed that's up and running at Akbar Sin AFR. You can find the link to that over on our Twitter feed where I've also got the Afrikshin URL as well. So go to our Twitter feed at China AFR project. And our new Arabic language website is going to be coming out in a few weeks, but we thought we would wait until after the Ramadan holiday when everybody is more focused on serious things like this and not focused on family and, and and all the festivities that are going on throughout the month of April. So keep your eyes out for that. We'll have a big announcement towards the end of April regarding our Arabic language site. Today we're going to be talking about diplomacy and the great power rivalries that are going on related to the war in Ukraine, but also There was a lot of movement this week in the diplomatic space. Uh, For the first time since the war in Ukraine, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov went to China, where he met with Wang Yi. Now, ostensibly, he went to... To participate in a foreign minister's conference that they had for the neighbors of Afghanistan. Also, the Iranian foreign minister was in town for that as well. But this was a very, very important movement that we saw in the diplomatic space there. The Chinese foreign minister, Wang Yi, has been very vocal in articulating China's somewhat confusing position on the war in Ukraine, where they're trying to kind of have it a little bit both ways. Kobis, you've been writing a lot about this in terms of the geopolitics of the war in Ukraine and how it's impacted Africa, and also how African countries have uh, a rather diverse strategic viewpoints with regards to the war in Ukraine. Let's kind of start our discussion a little bit with some of the columns that you've been writing over the past week or so, in terms of how African countries have been approaching the war in Ukraine, also how China has been trying to corral more and more of these countries to bolster its position on the war in Ukraine. And let's get started with the, that big overview.
0: The first indication of, of the kind of breadth of, of opinion among African countries about this issue was came out during the the UN votes on the, the invasion, where 25 African countries abstained or they weren't in the room, so as a way of kind of avoiding the vote. Um, and the rest of them voted in favor of of the resolution condemning Russian aggression. So, in the first place, this kind of broad split between these countries. We should also keep in mind that one country voted against the resolution, Eritrea. Um, and, um, And... it, it, there was this real broad split between these countries and it really showed the complexity of African positions about about the conflict. Um, and for a kind of a breakdown of those positions, Hannah Ryder from Development Reimagined did an amazing breakdown of them for the Center for Strategic and International Studies CSIS. Um, so that's worth looking at, you know. So, so a, a bunch of different African countries took different kinds of issue with the vote. But um, the the one, many of the ones that abstained abstained because they they either have quite close relationships with Russia or trade or or historical relationships with Russia, or they are very close to China and who famously, of course, also abstained. And you know, so I think in the case of a country like South Africa, for example, the fact that it's a BRICS member. Made it difficult for it to, to you know to, to, to have this kind of very public split from the Chinese position, which is, isn't the only reason I think that South Africa voted that way. South Africa's position was itself complicated and, and they put out a, its own their own statement about about the decision. But one of the things that struck me through all of this was that increasingly as since the vote and over the last few weeks, we've seen China, the Chinese position starting to develop into a kind of a third position. Um, kind of creating a space in between you know on the one hand being very pro-putinist and supporting the invasion or on the other hand being being very pro-NATO and you know kind of and, and kind of falling into 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 formation with with Western countries China is essentially opening a third position where they, they are reframing the, the the discussion away from the, the act the fact of, of Russian aggression towards the wider implications, particularly economic implications of of the anti Russia campaign and particularly the sanctions campaign. And so this is this is I think is getting a lot of sympathetic ears in Africa because African economies are already very very stressed because of the COVID pandemic. So now, you know, kind of like the the, the scrambling of of global supply chains due to the sanctions and the the difficulties to get, particularly Russian wheat and Russian Russian oil and gas, is is really is pushing a lot of African countries into a kind of an economic you know kind of danger zone. Um, so that's one of the issues. The other issue is is that a lot of countries, a lot of African countries, really don't want to get involved. You know, they feel it's far away from them. It, it's not it's not kind of really part of their of their their immediate concerns, and they worry about about kind of suffering from the fallout of this. With this comes a third a third kind of group of countries that have Kind of very negative views of NATO or Western pressure as a whole, and I think that is becoming a very strong position actually among many African countries because we're seeing a lot more complaints about kind of quote Western double standards in relation to their solidarity on Ukraine, while they're not particularly kind of so that they don't have the same kind of solidarity on some other conflicts like the one in Yemen, for example, um, and also differential treatment of, of of refugees between between Ukrainian refugees and. And refugees of color, and particularly Africans, um, and we've seen many many reports where refugees of color have been treated quite quite a lot more badly than than Ukrainian refugees. So this is a kind of a complicated position, um, and I think for a lot of African countries, they're starting to they start, they're using a kind of a Chinese positionality as a way for them to also step into this. This kind of like third position where they don't where they kind of don't want to be involved or they don't want to choose sides. And that is itself becoming its own kind of set of talking points about this kind of Western pressure to choose sides. Let's get a perspective now on this
1: from somebody who's following it very closely. He's been following Russia-Africa relations for a very long time, Sam Romani is an associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute in London and also a tutor of politics at Oxford University. He's also the author of an upcoming book on Russia-Africa relations that will hit bookshelves sometime this summer. And he's just started on another book on Ukraine. Joining us from Oxford for the first time on the show, a very big welcome to you, Sam.
2: Really great to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me.
1: It's fantastic to have you. We've been big admirers of your work for a very long time. You are prolific on Twitter. It's unreal how much good information that just flows out of your Twitter feed. So if you're not following Sam on Twitter, you must do it. It's an essential part of your diet. Sam, help us understand how you see this shaping out, particularly as it relates to Africa and the global South. Let me just kind of preface this a little bit by the fact that I'm sitting in a country here in Vietnam which voted a lot lo- along the lines of what Africans did, where they abstained from both of the UN votes. They have very strong relationships with the United States, also strong relationships with Russia. They don't want to be caught in the middle of this because as a middle power— there's a lot at stake for them and when you talk to vietnamese stakeholders they'll say that ideology and principle is just something that they cannot afford in this current situation simply because the stakes are in fact too high that if they pick one side over the other they could be screwed royally on it so that's the the dynamic that i think is playing out in a number of african countries it would be interesting to see how you see it from a, a Russia scholar point of view, someone who looks at it from your vantage point at Oxford, kind of help us lay the land in terms of what your thoughts are on this today.
2: Well, first of all, when you look at uh, how African countries responded, it's exactly as you said, the vast majority of them are really not wanting to toe a very strong line on this. And this is not new, because in 2014, with the uh, annexation of Crimea, the uh there were only two countries that voted on Russia's favor to annex Crimea. That was Sudan and Zimbabwe. This time around, only one country voted on Russia's favor, which was Eritrea. And that's partially because Russia played such an influential role in helping the UNSC lift sanctions on the Eritrean regime. And also Russia has been the largest arms supplier to Eritrea for about two decades. One thing I did notice in the UNGA vote on March the 3rd that was slightly different from the vote that was held eight years ago was that there were more African countries that did vote. Against to condemn the Russian war, and there were slightly fewer abstentions. Among the countries that voted for the uh, condemnation of the war was Kenya. Of course, the Kenyan UN ambassador gave a very stirring speech right after the war started, basically comparing Russia's uh, involvement in Ukraine to old fashioned European style colonialism, which is a big uh, soft power blow to the Russians because the Russians have always trained themselves as the antidote and the alternative to European colonialism, and especially. Uh, French colonialism in the region. But there seems to be unanimous consensus, even from a critic like Kenya and other countries across, not to uh, sanction Russia at all. And also, when it comes to the humanitarian crisis, South Africa played a very interesting role in, in promoting alternative UNGA motion that would have uh, acknowledged the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine without uh, criticizing the Russians. South Africans have been trying to mediate between Russia and Ukraine as well. Putin has reached out to them. That's just a little bit of a lay of the land of how the countries have have voted so far on all of this. Um, but with respect to the uh, impact of the, this on immediate Russian diplomacy, it appears as if Vladimir Putin is paying closer attention to Africa because he realizes that it's an integral part of his post-Western foreign policy. We saw dialogue not just with the South Africans about uh, diplomatic negotiations, but also countries where, where Russia did not really have much of a historic presence, at least in modern times like Senegal talking to the leader to, to Putin in the days after the invasion. So I think that Russia is going to be paying more attention to Africa. In the months ahead,
0: can you get an impression of how strongly actual sympathies with Russia is weighing in this in in, in these in these countries' position, and to which extent it, it is an unwillingness to be too close to to Western concerns or, or or to to kind of step into kind of a Western-led coalition, and to which extent? So, so where do I, where does one draw the line between the distaste on that side and actual hardcore sympathy with with Putin on the other side?
2: I think that hardcore sympathy with Putin is rather limited. Inside this uh, the African continent, I'm really not seeing very many countries that are really uh, supportive of the invasion per se. I mean, Central African Republic was the only country that recognized uh, Donetsk and Luhansk as independent countries, or at least would agree to do that. But even the Central African Republic did not vote in Russia's favor in the UNGA; it opted to abstain alongside South Africa. Public opinion surveys have been conducted. There was one set that was done by The Economist, I think it was around March the 7th, that showed that there was an interesting correlation between having a recent French military intervention and uh, supporting Russia's conduct. So the only country where a plurality of people supported uh, Russia's conduct was Mali. And even then, that was well short of 50% because most people didn't really have an opinion on it. The second uh, country, most popular country for Russia, was Cote d'Ivoire, which also had the memories of a French intervention and also Russia standing up for President Laurent Gbagbo and opposing the French quite vocally 10 years ago. So there appears to be uh, little sympathy for for Russia or Vladimir Putin overall and more sympathy for Russia as an abstraction or as a counterweight to uh, French and, uh, and European and American unilateralism. I think that's really where the soft power for Russia is on this uh, continent. And also, there's just a growing feeling, too, that you know the war in Ukraine should be treated as something of an internal affair or an affair that's dealt with between those two parties and African countries really shouldn't get involved. And one of the uh, leaders who happened to get a bit of attention for being in Moscow right before the war, so it was, was Hemeti, right? Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, the uh, Robinson Force, Forces Chief in Sudan. And he faced backlash when he got back, obviously, because there were all those reports about Russian uh, gold smuggling from Sudan, 30 tens per year, and concerns that, you know, the Russian war in Ukraine had raised the prices of vital foodstuffs, cooking oils, and other things. And he responded by saying that, you know, we have a lot of benefits with engagement with Russia and uh, along with other powers, and this is an internal affair. And that view, I think sums up a lot of Africa's leadership today, especially within the military establishments of countries with fragile civil-military relations.
1: Well, that very much aligns with the Chinese thinking on this issue, and that's one of the reasons why the Chinese have said they don't want to get involved, in part because... They don't believe in the use of these types of targeted sanctions that they themselves have been, uh, have received themselves. So that's that's interesting that you talk about that and how the African positions and the Chinese positions do have quite a bit of overlap. You mentioned Sudan. Let's talk about North Africa and the Horn of Africa, because that's where a lot of action is happening this week. Actually, let me start back. Last week, Jai Jun, the vice foreign minister and the special envoy from China for the Middle East, was in Algeria and in Sudan the following week, this week, as U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken made a stop in Morocco and Algeria, ostensibly to talk about democracy and talk about all sorts of different issues, but a lot of the speculation was that he is looking at new sources of natural gas for Europe to use so that they can replace Russian imports with that from Morocco and Algeria, among others. In Sudan, where also Jaijun spent some time, there is the rumor, prospect, I'm not sure how how solid this is, that Russia wants to build a Navy base there. So a lot of different parts happening in North Africa and the Horn of Africa. Can you talk to us about the dynamics in terms of Russia there?
2: Well, yeah. So first of all, obviously, North Africa and the Horn of Africa are of great importance to uh, Russia's uh, overall continental strategy. And one can perhaps argue that Russia's resurgence in Africa in general began through North Africa, because it was Vladimir Putin's trips to Algeria in 2006 and Libya in 2008, which kind of uh, set the stage for a much more assertive posturing on the continent under his successor, Dmitry Medvedev, who made the first continent wide tour of any uh, Russian leader since the collapse of the Soviet Union. So, and North Africa has got a variety of uh, strategic importances and tactical importances for, for the Russians. Algeria is obviously its largest arms vendor, and uh, Russia, sells, in most years, sells more arms to Algeria than the rest of the continent combined. Russia obviously has a protracted geopolitical foothold inside Libya, which he views as vital to his broader Mediterranean strategies, as well as a passageway to Africa, and might one day culminate in a naval base in Tobruk or an air base in Benghazi. Uh, sorry, the Air Base in Tobruk and the Naval Base in Benghazi, which has been something that they've been talking about since the Gaddafi era. And they have water Group mercenaries there, and they have in li- in alignment with the uh, local strongmen in the east, Khalifa Haftar and Agula Saleh. Um saleh uh, Egypt, obviously, is an integral partner for the Russians, and the Egyptians have stayed neutral on this crisis in general. The Russians have reassured everybody that their stake in the Suez Canal is not going to be uh, undermined when that investment comes forward. Though there are some doubts, obviously, about the future of Rosatom, particularly if the United States does sanction that civil nuclear energy giant. Algeria, in line with its longstanding support for non interference everywhere from Syria to uh, Gaddafi and Libya to now uh, this Russian crisis, has generally also aligned with the abstention in terms of not interfering in the politics of Russia and Ukraine, as has Libya, which is having elections coming up and it wants to ingratiate itself with as many foreign powers as possible, or at the very least, not make Russia a spoiler. So Russia's partnerships in North Africa uh, have not really changed as a result of this crisis, and the strategic importance of the region remains very high. There is, as Eric noted, the uh, issue of Algeria becoming an alternative gas supplier to Europe. Italy has been really seeking out Algeria as a financial supplier, and Spain was also talking about that with the Mediterranean to Maghreb pipeline, but then there was one big problem, because the Spanish released a declaration about the Western Sahara being part of Morocco and uh, Spain and Algeria's diplomatic relations have really just uh, went into a tailspin right when they were just talking about the gas supplies. I suspect that's temporary and I suspect that that will return, but that was a very uncomfortable moment, and maybe that's why the Americans are probably stepping in to kind of uh, n- nudge some of this along. So I think that Algeria as an alternative gas supplier is important, but Algeria relies too much on its defense infrastructure to be cutting itself off from Russia entirely and Algeria has, has gone for uh, Katza sanctions exemptions in the past because of that. Will the Americans give it to them this time? It's unclear. Um, uh, With respect to the Horn of Africa, yes, I would say that the Horn of Africa also has been rising in importance. Ethiopia has shown certainly a lot of public and uh, so grassroots and societal sympathy for the Russians because the Russians did not interfere in Tigray. And the uh, Ethiopians are returning that favor with regards to Ukraine. And uh, the Russian messaging in Ethiopia has been very interesting because the Russian embassy has been putting out memories of the, you know, second Adwa, invoking the struggle against anti-colonialism that they are somehow part of. And Ethiopian netizens seem to be really lapping that up, at least outside of Tigray. So that's an interesting thing that I'm noticing from monitoring uh, the information in social media spaces. Um, but with regards to Sudan, it's business as usual. I mean, the Port Sudan Naval Base appears to be moving ahead. Hemeti uh, said so just, I believe, on the 3rd of March about a week after he visited, though there is growing anti-Russian sentiment inside Sudan because of the increase in food prices, which is linked to the Russian war and the scandal I mentioned about the Russians stealing gold from Sudan. And that might mean that if the civilian authorities in Sudan get the upper hand over the military in the future, the Port Sudan Naval Base might end up being shelved so that's something to watch
0: speaking about a different kind of historical um, precedent to, to this current crisis the nato invasion in libya i think a, a lot of africans that i've seen have cited that as you know as, as part of their reason for their kind of hesitance to to support nato i wonder if you could talk about the kind of wider fallout of that of that invasion like why um you know why is it why is it historically important
2: Well, that's definitely a memory that the Africans would be paying a lot of close attention to. And obviously, Russia, at the time, abstained from UN Resolution 1973, which would have uh, allowed for the creation of the no-fly zone. And that is a very controversial decision inside Russia. I think, in some ways, it expedited the demise of Dmitry Medvedev as a major political figure in Russia for a period of time and marginalized him under, under the thumb of Vladimir Putin, He's trying to break out of that today with a lot of outlandish rhetoric, but he's still kind of uh, not not really a serious contender for power. And there's all obviously, the Russians would say, or at least the supporters of Medvedev would say, that uh, when he voted for a no-fly zone, Russia did not mean regime change. Though that's obviously countered by the uh, participation of Medvedev at the G8 summit in Rome, where he agreed to the resolution that Gaddafi must go. So that's a bit of hypocrisy and double standards over there. But that's still the Russian line. And they never wanted regime change. They just wanted a no-fly zone. And they were willing to go along with that because they felt that you know the, the, that Libya wasn't really uh, worth defending as much as Syria from a strategic point of view, and that Gaddafi was doomed to fail anyways. But since then, the Russians have rewritten the history of their, their policy towards Adamantly uh, opposing Gaddafi's death, accusing it of being an assassination by the West, even though the Libyans themselves actually were the ones who who killed him in the end, and uh, the 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 general uh, tone inside the African continent was that was divided on that issue. I mean, even in South Africa, there were great chisms, right? With uh, Jacob Zuma initially voting uh, for the no-fly zone and then going to the BRICS summit and taking the non-Western position, criticizing the NATO military intervention, and Thabo Mubiki trying to act as a mediator with Russia's support. That's kind of remembered. The, the, the Then there were other leaders who are much more uh, critical of this, like uh, Yoweri Museveni in, uh, in Uganda and Algeria, for example, or Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe or traditional anti-Western leaders who have appealed to Russia's uh, opposition to Gaddafi's death. That's an important thing. The Russians also, at the same time as the Libyan intervention was going on, were critical of the French military intervention in Cote d'Ivoire, and that kind of uh, eased some of the disquiet inside Africa about Russia's support for the no-fly zone. So flashing forward 10 years later... Libya remains very central to uh, Russian foreign policy, where the Russians feel that, much like in Kosovo, they were cheated, they were conned, they voted for a no-fly zone, they got a regime change, and they vowed never again. And that narrative that is popular in Africa, and that is part of the reason why I think some African elites are probably uh, sympathetic towards Russia this time.
1: Let's try to reorient our conversation back to the Chinese. As I mentioned at the top of the show, there's a lot of diplomatic activity going on in in China this week. By the way, everything's going on in the ancient town of Tunxi, which is in Anhui province. And I couldn't figure out why they're meeting in Anhui. For those of you not familiar, Anhui is a province in eastern China, a couple hundred kilometers outside of Shanghai, and not in Beijing. And so I called up somebody today from uh, the foreign ministry who I know, and I said, why aren't they going? Going to Beijing. And he explained to me, he said, because there is a COVID bubble that they've set up in Tunxi where the private jets can kind of come in, land, the visiting dignitaries don't have to then go through the normal 21-day quarantine that they would have to do if they went to Beijing. So little fun fact there about why all of this is going on in Dunchi and not in Beijing. So A couple weeks ago, this parade of foreign ministers also included the Zambian foreign minister. Tanzania was done by video conference and, bringing back our Algeria conversation, the Algerian foreign minister. And that's just, again, really just one of dozens that have been going through Dunxi this this year so far. So when we look at the Chinese equation here, Sam, what are you seeing here? Because the Chinese seem to guess, as Koba's talked about, are evolving their policy. They really see a big block of African countries as, if not aligned or if not allied with their worldviews, definitely sympathetic to it. And China is trying to build this coalition of the rest against the United States and Europe. And again, in many ways, this isn't about the war in Ukraine. This is about really challenging U.S. and European hegemony in the eyes of many Chinese policymakers. Can you just tell us how you see the world based on everything you've said from the Russia-Africa point of view, looking a little bit from how the Chinese are seeing this or how it's being played out?
2: Well, definitely, I would absolutely agree with you. And I think that it's very symbolic was that uh, map that Li Jinjiao from the Chinese foreign ministry tweeted out a couple of weeks ago, which showed the international community as defined by the West to be the United States, Canada, most European countries, interestingly not countries like Hungary or Serbia, and uh, the Taiwan and uh, Japan, right?
1: And Australia as well.
2: Australia as well. Exactly, yeah. So that's why I was just the, – the, the, how the West is viewed to be the international community. That's very symbolic, right? Because China is, as you're saying, trying to build a coalition of the global south, a coalition of the rest against the crisis. And uh, we're seeing that even with the renewal of dialogue between China and India – which uh, has taken place even though the Indians are saying that the border dispute in Ladakh is still a problem and they can't have normal diplomatic relations without getting that resolved. We're seeing now at the, uh, the, the meeting about Afghanistan that was being held today, that was the catalyst for Sergei Lavrov and Wang Yi meeting, China trying to be a coalition builder in the humanitarian sphere, also in terms of resisting uh, economic sanctions against the Taliban and getting humanitarian aid into Afghanistan. So China is trying to frame itself as this kind of grand master coalition builder, right? Coalition builder of the rest on humanitarian issues, on security issues, and more broadly, as a challenger to the Western-dominated world order. You're seeing the Chinese uh, stepping in with regards to uh, t- making more tangible gestures about alternatives to SWIFT and about the uh, mere credit card system to kind of help uh, r- Russians who have been kind of cut off from MasterCard and American Express, like a small thing, but still quite important and quite interesting to see how that's been playing out. So in de-dollarization, they're challenging the economic order. They're challenging the Western hegemony in the security space. And they're trying to frame themselves as this kind of grand development and humanitarian stakeholder.
1: How, how do you think they're doing? You, you said they're trying to do this. Are they effective or not, in your view?
2: Well, why I'm saying trying is that I think that they certainly, their narratives are certainly getting a lot of resonance in the global South. And, uh... Obviously, the creation of the Russia-China-India block, which Dimitri Medvedev was talking about over the weekend, is kind of unrealistic for the reasons I just mentioned, because of China and India having those ongoing tensions, and still a lot of mistrust, and there's a lot of frictions in there. Sergey Lavrov is going to India soon, so we'll see how that goes. But uh, yeah, I'm saying trying because we just don't have enough time yet to really prove how successful it's been. And uh, on the de-dollarization side, there's been a lot of talk and not so much action. And also, on other sides, I mean, China is uh, some of the Chinese state-owned companies, including Sinopec, right, are not investing in new uh, projects inside Russia, or at, the very least, at least according to Reuters reporting, some people can contradict that, but that was announced. There were, were been repeated uh, discussions about how some Chinese banks in the days after the invasion were getting cold feet about new uh, raw material financing inside Russia, but Chinese uh, medium and small businesses are seeing an opportunity in Russia, much like the way their Indian counterparts are, and they're wanting to get in. So, On the Russian sanctions side, there appears to be China state-owned companies and uh, private businesses are a little bit all over the place. And whether that's going to prove to be a a problem in terms of reining in their actual economic partnership with Russia down the line, is interesting to watch. That's why I'm saying maybe. There's there's some caveats here, right? That's one notable caveat that I'm seeing over here. Another notable caveat is obviously their ability to work with India. And then uh, with respect to how this might be uh, playing out inside Africa, I would say that there is a lot of uh, discussions about uh, uniting African countries or capitalizing on their abstentions to kind of loop them into this kind of coalition of the rest. But most of the engagements that we're actually seeing that were substantive over the past week, like the $7 billion investment in phosphates in Algeria or, on, or in Zambia about their new agricultural investments and about the economic zone in, in Southern Africa, were really about more standard economic issues. And there wasn't that much, I mean, substantive rhetoric about kind of uh, Ukraine or the world order, it seemed to be just more the run of the mill economic stuff. From what I saw, has been the most impactful.
0: Looking into the future, obviously no one knows at the moment how how this crisis is going to play out. But how do you how do you foresee the very the very fact of the invasion shaping Russia's kind of global position and particularly in the global south in the future?
2: Well, that's a very interesting uh, question. I mean, again, it's a little bit early to tell. I mean. If you would ask Russian policymakers about a year and a half ago what they saw the long-term goal in the world order would be, it would be to be the third pole in a tripolar order. This was very popular in Russian discourse during the COVID pandemic. The U.S. and China are on the verge of a superpower confrontation, Russia being the third pole in the security sphere and perhaps partnering with India to some degree and the Middle East and Africa and some of its other partners there and becoming a key figure in that kind of tripolar space. That was what was quite popular. Now, Russia's point of view is probably looking at a renewed Cold War. That's what the rhetoric was, was, being, was coming out today. I mean, there was actually a statement from Konstantin Kozyshev, who was one of the primary foreign policy decision makers in the Russian upper house, who said the Cold War never ended. And now we're facing a new Cold War with two blocks. So Russia doesn't see itself as kind of like a third way that's leaning towards China in a tripolar order, but more part of a bipolar order and in block where, with China, and now the rest of the non-Western world. So they're seeing their position in the world order and the nature and the future of the world order very differently. The overarching view, however, is that this war with Ukraine has fundamentally reshaped the global order and that unipolarity is dead. Medvedev actually used those words, others have talked around it, but that's generally what the gist of how Russia views itself in terms of the broader global order. With respect to how that will translate into actual influence inside the global self, um, I think that the Russians obviously have a very strong footprint in the Middle East, with the only the Israelis and the Turks condemning their conduct, and the rest of the countries mainly staying silent. Qatar are coming close, but not even mentioning Russia. There's obviously rivalries with alternative suppliers, like Qatar and Algeria and the gas sphere, but for the most part, the partnerships that they built in Syria are going to stay intact. Same goes with South Asia and Southeast Asia, but respect to that, and Latin America to some degree, though there were some concerns about what U.S. engagement with Venezuela might mean. and the Brazilians and the Mexicans have kind of been all over the place in their reaction, though all always against sanctioning Russia. With regards to uh, what we're seeing inside Africa and the Russian long-term position, I think that, as I said, Africa is an increasingly important part of their post-Western foreign policy, and they're here to stay. The big question is how they project power. Are they going to project power through development assistance and investments, which were a key part of what they announced at the Sochi Summit? Which was the forty-three African heads of states visiting Sochi in twenty nineteen? With fewer resources, that's not possible. Are they going, or are they going to be involved as a security provider in the region? Like, for example, dealing with things like anti-piracy, counter-terrorism. That's possible. We're seeing that happening in Mali, but they've had a poor track record in Mozambique. It's unclear whether their flagship naval base in Sudan is going to get built. That's harder. So what I think we're going to see happening is Russia moving more from a great power kind of frame in Africa, and towards being more of a spoiler of Western interests. So from moving from being like what I would say is a virtual great power, a great power that's got a lot of connections in inside Africa, but doesn't have a weak has a weak economic footing, into being more of a spoiler, being more of a provocateur, and also looking at Africa in a more extractive, tactical hard currency engagements then. So more private military companies and less long-term investments. That's what I'm seeing happening in terms of Russia's future in Africa.
1: But aren't you giving the Russians a little bit too much credit by even calling them a great power? I mean, this is an economy that's the, that before the conflict was the size of Texas, okay, just the size of Texas. Today, it's probably the size of Ohio or a smaller, a mid-size American state, given the sanctions and what's been going on there. It's nowhere near a peer of the United States or China. I mean, it wants to be. And so it's not surprising that the that the Russians who uh, no doubt believe that the Cold War never ended. But it's a little bit of a fantasy that they are anywhere near a peer of the United States and China. At the same time, they have nothing to offer Africa. This was the Sochi summit was a complete joke because there was no aid. There was no package. There was no nothing. I mean, you're right. Forty three heads of state went there and they came back completely empty-handed. At the end of the day, Russia sells oil and gas. That's mostly what they sell, and a little bit of wheat, right? I mean, am I oversimplifying it? But that's not exactly what a lot of African countries need in terms of raw oil and gas. So I'm just wondering, besides weapons, there's really nothing uh, in a trade relationship between Russia and African countries.
2: you're absolutely right. I mean, that's what I'm saying is that I'm talking about how they're framing themselves and what they're doing. Yeah, in terms of projects, in terms of things, rather than what's actually happening, because absolutely, you're absolutely right.
1: But It'll be the Wagner Group that's going to be the troublemaker yeah. there, and that's something that's been on the attention of the United States. And, and the United States is doing this, this really, what I think is a, a tragic thing, where they're equating Russia and China in the same sentence. All last week in the House Armed Services Committee and the Senate Armed Services Committee, we saw all the generals from the different commands, CENTCOM, AFRICOM, and SOUTHCOM, testify, and they used Russia and China almost as interchangeable words with one another. And that, to me, is a tragic error on the part of the Americans to do that. But it shows you that it's at least on their agenda that in those various parts of the world that they equate the Russians and the Chinese together. What's your take on that?
2: Yeah. So, uh, again, a lot of good points in back there. With respect to great power, and russia that's a very controversial question, certainly, obviously the Russians would uh use their historical legacies and the fact that they have their the world's largest nuclear arsenal and their relative military power and their you know uh and downplay the size of their economy. They always seem to measure it measure it in purchasing power parity, which gave them the sixth largest economy in the world and the fifth largest economy in the world uh, before so that that would uh, make it look a little less embarrassing than talking about Texas and ohio but they would always look at it more from those uh, points of view and from those lenses. But the, no- but the notion of Dershavnost, the notion of Russian greatness, the notion of having a global power projection capacity is uh, very much in the minds of what they look for. So when I was describing a- Russia's policy in Africa in the book, I described it as a virtual great power because it's a, it, it has the appearances of, of, of being a great power. it can invite 43 countries and heads of state to FET Vladimir Putin in Sochi. It's got a superficial array of diplomatic relationships dispersed across the continent. It's involved in a number of conflicts where it has influential roles, like Libya and Central African Republic. But the economic foundations and the long-term sustainability of their partnerships are very weak, and their partnerships with the larger countries are much less developed than with the isolated, rogue uh, uh, states that... Really, offer them very little. So that's why I kind of viewed it more in the context of imagery rather than reality. And I would concur with that. And by the same token, I would also concur with the grave, grave mistake that the Americans have made in terms of talking about a dual containment strategy of China and Russia. Because one, that just brings them closer together. And uh, even now, when there are some Chinese commentators, this is a minority view, who are looking at how, okay, we don't want to be like Russia's foreign policy. We want to be aggressive like this. We want to kind of pursue a different development model. It just brings them closer together and also gives russia too much uh, of a disproportionate threat p- position that is based much more on domestic politics than on actual national security imperatives so that 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 is a that is a big problem and I, I absolutely agree with you on this the problem is down the line and i think even more so the Russians are going to be a spoiler and uh, a destabilizer and uh, take advantage of like you know uh, aligning with dictatorships they've ever since the Al-Shifa attacks in 1998 in Sudan, they've always been supportive of Rogar James against Western unilateralism and opposed to sanctions, and those partnerships will continue. But beyond just being a spoiler and propping up autocrats, if they actually want to have a role on the continent, they're going to have to find other powers to partner with in some kind of a coalition. And that's where things get tricky. They have no partnerships with really the regional powers of the MENA region, aside from the UAE and Libya. They don't work with Turkey, which has got a bigger trade for partnership than them, a lot of development projects, a lot of things they could work with. And they also don't work enough with India, which has got three times as much trade with them on the continent, or China. The Russians and the Chinese talk superficially about uh, combating Western unilateralism in Africa and vote together in the United Nations on peacekeeping missions and most other crises. But there's very little in terms of Russia actually using its security footprint to guard Chinese assets, or Russia and China really participating in joint economic ventures, so if the Russians cannot work with the Chinese or and are pursuing their own course, and in fact are pursuing destabilizing conduct that might hurt the Belt and Road more than help it, and they can't work with regional powers or India or anyone else, they're going to be really uh, much weaker in Africa in the uh, years to come. And they're just going to be a, a spoiler that kind of extracts where they can to get hard currency to counter sanctions.
0: I was wondering, you know, kind of the, what you made of the implications of, of this kind of split you were in vote. On the Biden administration's talking point of autocracies versus kind of like-minded democracies, which has been such a such a kind of a strong theme of their, the way that they kind of frame their, their, their foreign policy, the, the way that the, the vote kind of shook out, particularly also the fact that, that, that it wasn't clearly just autocracies, you know, kind of choosing to abstain, you know, so a, a democracy like South Africa was one of one of the countries that decided, you know, kind of to abstain from the vote. Um, so, you know, kind of what did like, how, how did it kind of make you think about about this kind of Biden administration line of us group of democracies versus autocracies like China, like Russia?
2: Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, I think that the UNGA vote did not really show that kind of complete correlation between democracies and autocracies, as you said, one of the most autocratic regimes on the continent which is president Sisi's egypt voted uh, in favor of the resolution algeria which is hardly a democracy these days voted in favor uh, voted, uh, voted to abstain and then south africa which is a democracy as you can see voting voted to abstain as well so that that's the point so there really is no correlation between autocracy and democracy there's a tendency for some autocratic states like the Central African Republic, or Mali, where Russia's involved, to maybe uh, be more neutral or more accommodating of the Russian position. But that is not a universal correlation. So I wouldn't really see too much stock in the way Biden is dividing the country between democracies and autocracies. It's much more, I think, about other variables. Experience with colonialism, for example, in particular, and experience with Western military interventions, a particular recent experience with French military interventions, experience with sanctions in the past, as well as you know soviet legacies i mean i think those three or four things often are bigger determinants and factors on how countries vote today than whether they're just democratic or an autocratic regime
1: one final question before we go is about this picture that was posted by the russian foreign ministry i think it was a week or two ago where it had all of the ambassadors from the brics countries you know happily together after a breakfast in moscow with sergey lavrov what did you take from that picture and do you see this now as a potential second coming of the BRICS which has really lost their their joie de vivre over the past few years but now they have they seem to have a, a new sense of purpose as you pointed out Russia and India definitely have a certain degree of alignment China obviously is there Brazil is a little bit of a wild card in all of this they they've been kind of straddling both sides of the fence but certainly South Africa India and China Seem to be more on the Russia side of the fence. Again, it doesn't neatly break down, but more there. And that picture was very interesting. But I, would, I was curious about what you thought of it.
2: So, uh, Russia has basically, uh, at least within the academic community and the expert community, which is, and some of these people are also former senators and former people who do have linkages by the Russian Academy of Sciences to uh, Vladimir Putin. They have tended to view uh, BRICS as basically a moribund organization. The uh, Russians sometimes take credit for bringing South Africa into BRICS because Dmitry Medvedev was supposedly the first BRICS leader to uh, at least pr- privately give Zuma a tap on the back and say, we want you in this club. So the Russians kind of have a ha- have a, th- a fondness for that, that they often repeat. But BRICS has generally been something that's been quite symbolic. But the COVID-19 pandemic kind of uh, led to a slight alteration to how BRICS was being viewed within the constructs of Russian foreign policy, we saw Vladimir Putin use the BRICS summit in 2020 to uh, advertise uh, vaccine interdependence and uh, cooperation. And this was partially motivated by self-interest because it wanted the Sputnik V vaccine to be ratified by by Brazil, South Africa, and by China. And then in the year that followed, it didn't happen. So there was a big um, there were there were backs and forths and all kinds of things. And that was kind of an egg in the face moment for for, for Vladimir Putin. But also because he wanted to show that BRICS could be an organization of non-Western powers that could actually play a major role in working together and resolving a crisis. And if Russia was a key cog in that, that would be good for Russia's status and influence. So that's how this whole thing started off. And now BRICS is having an increasingly important role in the Russian uh, foreign policy psyche because, as you said, China, South Africa, and India have largely aligned with the Russian position. Brazil zigzagged. I mean, Bolsonaro was sympathetic towards Russia— The Brazilian foreign minister was absolutely not. But now the Brazilian foreign minister is talking about uh, criticizing the sanctions regime. And and even Brazil is drifting more in the pro-Russian line in some ways than not, though it did vote to condemn the invasion in the UNGA. So it's a little all over the place still, but leaning a little more pro-Russian than it was. So I think that down the line, I mean, the the Russians are going to try to uh, revive BRICS in some way, shape, or form. But what happens at the bilateral level is going to be much more impactful than anything that happens in a block like this. So I would be still very skeptical of its ability to exert anything more than symbolic leverage, no matter how much the Russians try.
1: Sam Romani is an associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute in London and also a tutor of politics at Oxford University. Also, keep your eyes out on your bookshelves for a new book on Russia-Africa relations that will hit the stores later this summer, and also next year, hopefully, we'll see Sam's book on the Ukraine as well. But most importantly, Sam, you are an amazing Twitter jockey, and you are fantastic on Twitter. What is your Twitter handle where people can find you and what you're reading and writing these days?
2: So, yeah, everything's over there. My articles, my commentaries, uh, my interviews. It's at at Sam ramini 2 so it's my first and— last game with it,
1: kid. I'm always blown away by how much engagement you get. You put up these uh, these articles and they get thousands and thousands and the rest of us on Twitter are just so envious of how enthusiastic your supporters are and your followers are. It's really quite remarkable. So I highly recommend it. Again, I'll put a link to Sam's Twitter handle in the show notes. Sam, thank you so much for joining us today to help us sort it out. My head is spinning right now with everything you've said, and it's going to take a little time for it all to marinate, but things are changing so fast that we hope that we can have you back again in a few weeks to help us sort through it again.
2: Oh, thank you. That would be great, and it was really great to speak with you.
1: Cobus. I think for a lot of our listeners in some parts of the U.S. and Europe who are just following mostly mainstream media narratives, I think they're going to be very surprised from the complexity of the arguments that Sam put forth, because from watching NBC News, ABC, CBS, you know, the main, a really true mainstream that, that aren't very nuanced, there is a sense that the US is on the larger side of the coalition. And I think what we heard from Sam is that the Russians, the Chinese, and to some extent the Indians as well, and South Africa is very much a player in all of this um ha- have the majority of people if you, you know maybe not in terms of numbers of states and actually even maybe numbers of states too but certainly when you measure against population India China alone and 25 African states that either abstained or didn't vote certainly puts the column on the other side of the US i don't want to say pro russia because i think it's more complicated than that but on on the side of the ledger that is not the US and Europe is much larger than I think most Americans and Europeans may understand.
0: You know that, that's completely true, and I also, you know, like I, I think the second point to make there is that that a lot of Western commentators that that I've that I've seen tend to ascribe this to direct Chinese or Russian influence. You know, so so they're looking at like they're looking for some kind of influence building. But as, as Sam pointed out, in a lot of cases, this isn't necessarily because people are so super pro-Russian. It, it's because they have a bunch of other concerns. Um, and these include, you know, like direct economic interests, but also a lot of kind of reservations about Western leadership itself. And I think this is a really, it's really revealing, I think, uh, you know, about this particular moment that we're seeing in Western leadership. But I think it's also a real challenge, I think, for the West. Um, you know, because because they are incredibly good at putting out narratives about about how they lead, but the reality on the ground tends to be a lot more complicated. And um, and I think in, in they are kind of their coalition building is kind of caught in that gap at the moment.
1: Yeah, and also here in Southeast Asia as well, it mirrors what's happened in Africa. Most of the states abstained. Again, Vietnam is a classic example of this as a middle power country. Really trying to have it both ways. Vietnamese propaganda and Vietnamese media has been much more along the lines of what the Chinese are doing in terms of taking some of the Russian narratives. But again, you see a lot of diversity of thought in some of the non-official media. So it's very, very complex. I'd be very interested to hear what the conversations are between the U.S. and say the Vietnamese and the U.S. and the Kenyans, if you will. Again, middle similar middle powers in trying to persuade them To align on their side of this story because it just doesn't look good in terms of optics where once again we have the small group of democracies which are predominantly white with the exception of Japan and, and maybe South Korea of course but again Australia, New Zealand, these are the five I countries, Canada and Western Europe and then this huge block of global south countries on the other side of the ledger. And this seems to be playing out in a number of different issues. So Huawei has a very similar map to the UN map uh, for Russia. Also on some of this, uh, remember with the democracy summit that was that happened last year. Uh, that too had a very similar dynamic as well. So I'm not sure how productive this is in terms of framing it, autocracies and democracies, and that's what the Americans continually are doing. That this is a, a fight for democracy. And, and I'm not sure that's a winning argument in these cases.
0: There's so much kind of interesting and complicated issues involved here because one of them is um, is is the, the kind of legacy of the of Western countries to you know as 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 a refuge for those kind of fleeing fleeing you know like bad people in, you know, in their own countries and of course that has such a, a strong resonance with the second world war for example you know and and we're seeing those resonances these kind of echoes in 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 the in the treatment of of ukrainian refugees and this kind of show of this kind of warm warm heart of europe essentially you know kind of as like you know kind of as as these people are moving in and there there's no way that that doesn't stand in like really stark contrast with the way that the way that 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 refugees are and and, and other kind of migrants are treated you know, when they're not from this particular moment or they're not from this particular country. And that's not to say that all Ukrainian, you know, kind of refugees are treated well. That's that, you know, we know that's a very complicated situation. It's a really chaotic and tragic situation. But it's also a really complicated and tragic situation in a place like Afghanistan, for example. And we've seen Afghan refugees not getting that kind of treatment in Europe. And so, you know, so so, so it raises all of these counter-narratives about the narratives that the West tells itself at the moment when these narratives that the West tells itself are really, really crucial and, and under a lot of stress. You know, so yeah, it's, it's, I'm rambling a little bit, but but it's, it's it's just incredible how revealing it is about, about the way that Western narratives play in the rest of the world.
1: But be careful, and I've seen this over and over again, and the Chinese government themselves is now jumping on this whole thing about how white European or white Ukrainians are being well-received in Europe and non-whites from, they said, I think the Wang being the, the Chinese foreign ministry spokesman said from Africa, Latin America, and South Asia and the Middle East were, were not being treated well. One of the things you hear from people in Eastern Europe is that this is about Slavic identity, not about racial identity. It's a very, very big difference. And, and again, they see a kinship with fellow Slavs who are Ukrainian, not necessarily that they're white. So if I was on that side of the border as a non-Slav, I might encounter the same problems that a lot of non-whites are facing as well. Again, this is way beyond my pay grade in understanding it. But one of the, the readings that I've been picking up from this is that it's more complex than merely race.
0: I mean, definitely. But, but, you know, at the same time, race does play a role. And also, we're living, obviously, as as Sam said, we're living in a world where, where, where many of these countries were shaped by colonialism. And race, as we know it now, is a Western colonial construct. You know, so, um so, so there's no getting away from it, even if it doesn't necessarily, you know, even if it's a complicated situation that's informed by other identity as well.
1: Yeah. and again, I, I want to be very clear here that this is vastly more complicated than 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 even I'm portraying it to be. My only point here is that I think boiling it down to race, and I think you're saying this as well. Is, is incomplete as an analysis. There, there's a lot of dynamics that are going on here. Let's just kind of circle back to the Chinese again and, and what your take is on how they're approaching it. I think they're playing their hand very well right now, and, and they're moving very aggressively. Uh, they're very assertively. I think the United States is also playing a strong hand well, too. I have to say that Blinken's diplomacy has been quite strong. There's a lot going on here. Both can be true at the same time, by the way where the U.S. can be moving well at the same time as the Chinese. They're both making gains, I think, in their respective categories. Give me your assessment of how you see the U.S. diplomacy compared to the Chinese diplomacy.
0: Oh, it's so difficult. Um, it's very difficult to kind of put them in a, in a kind of a horse race style comparison. Um, they, you know, one of the things I think that the, that the Chinese have been very it's it's very interesting to kind of watch the, these patterns of Chinese diplomacy over the last two or three weeks because you know we, we've we've pointed out many times that the Chinese show up, you know, kind of like like it's you know the leader of Benin like visits or malawi or or Lesotho or whatever like kind of visits visits Beijing, and there's like full on kind of red carpet rollout. And, you know, that kind of constancy of showing up all the time in Africa, that is now, you know, being echoed by a lot, There's really meeting after meeting after meeting with all of these different countries, like many, like two two special envoys, you know, on, on tours while Foreign, Foreign Minister Wang Yi is also like meeting people, person after person after person. So, so on the one hand, like, they're, they're kind of working overtime and... For a long time, that wasn't necessarily kind of echoed by by Western diplomacy. Now it is, you know, kind of now Anthony Blinken is similarly kind of like going from global South country to global South country and kind of and meeting meeting lots of people. So so in a way, it's it's kind of they're, they're converging in a kind of in 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 a, in a methodological sense, but. You know, kind of, it's, it's, it's going to be, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's very difficult to gauge, you know, kind of which of the, the kind of sets of messaging is the most effective. Because in, in, you know, kind of, because the, the, the two powers just, just have such a different set of ways that they engage with these countries on other levels, on non diplomatic levels. You know, so, so, for example, with the Chinese, Diplomacy is one thing, but they're also laying the internet cables, also building the ports, they're also building highways, like, you know, like, the the, the engagement is happening on all of these different levels at once, of which diplomacy is a, is a, is a key one. Whereas I think in, in, in the case of some Western countries or, or in, the, in the U.S., diplomacy then has to do a lot more heavy lifting, um, you know, because because some of some of these other levers are not are not kind of in, in the picture. So um, so in that sense, you know, kind of it, it, it like it, it becomes very difficult to compare.
1: So you can hear us struggling a little bit for our words in this show. This is a tough tough topic to take on because things are moving so fast. There's so many aspects to it. There's so much to digest from what Sam was saying. And again, it's hard to kind of make our way through it and look at it from all of the different vantage points from the Indian side, the Russian side here in Southeast Asia, the US, the Europeans, the Chinese. It is, I mean, it's incredible how how multifaceted this is. So we're struggling to get through it, but at the end of the day, what we're doing every day in the newsletter is putting together bits and pieces of it so that our readers and our subscribers can try and have a better grasp, again, of what more voices are being said. We're showcasing a lot of voices coming out of Africa and the global South and and really trying to add uh, different perspectives than what you hear in traditional mainstream media in the United States and Europe, and even to some extent in China as well. Also, we've been translating a lot of Chinese scholars and Chinese analysts in what we call our View from China section. You can go right on our homepage, we have it right there. Again, trying to bring some different voices that are not the typical propaganda voices that you hear from Xinhua or CGTN, but these are coming out of the think tanks and the academic journals. And again, they bring a lot more texture and nuance to the discussion. Uh, Again, for those of you who speak French and Arabic... Uh, all of this stuff is is being translated into those languages, and our editors are also uh, finding great stuff that's coming out of their communities. So hope that you'll take a look at what they're producing and all the great work that they're doing. Again, go to our Twitter page at China AFR Project, and you'll see the links to everything that's there. So let's leave our conversation there for now. There's obviously so much more to talk about going forward, but we'll be revisiting this issue of Ukraine and how it's changing the entire international framework. And of course, Africa is a big part of that. So for Fence Staden I'm Eric Olander. We'll be back again next week with another episode. Until then, thank you so much for listening.
0: The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. For more information about the China Africa Project, go to ChinaAfricaProject.com.